Continuing once again this morning in our study in Amos in chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 7, woe to those at ease. Now quickly this morning is manner of review. The sin of Jeroboam the first and all of Israel along with him was not simply demonic paganism, but instead began with Jeroboam refashioning God in the manner that he believed that he needed him to be. Having thus removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation, they immediately fell into the vilest of depravities, a madness, believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth of God that was set so clearly before them, and it continued to erode and to eat away at the fabric of the heart of the people like rot until during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, just two years before the earthquake, Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, saw a word from the Lord. For the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Here we see a very particular, a very partial God showing no partiality. For there is an anger that comes forth out of love stronger than any that has ever come out of hatred. So the Lord speaks to them. And he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Not simply an insult, but a spiritual reality. Because of out of all the people of the earth, he knew them. He was intimate with them. And because of that, they will meet him, Yahweh, the very God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war. He says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, not because he doesn't know you, but specifically because he does. And out of that intimacy, he speaks a lamentation over them, a dirge for the dead, a complex song anger and sadness coming from the complex heart of a complex God. God is angry with them and rightfully so. He is angry with them because the virgin Israel has broken his heart. And the truth that just comes bubbling to the top out of the book of Amos is that if you're going to place your trust somewhere you had better know who you're trusting and not just think that you do. These very people whom the Lord was roaring at actually desired the day of the Lord and the day of His coming, and they desired it, Amos said, unto their destruction. It was to their destruction instead of to their salvation because they did not actually know the gods, the God whose day it will be. And so... He says, therefore, rightly well. Because God told them to hate evil and love good, but instead they had hated good and loved evil rightly well, He says, woe to you, for justice will roll down. will turn itself upon them like the tumbling of waters. Well, today we will see woe indeed, particularly to those who are the least willing to be woeful. In Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the prophet continues with the word of the Lord and says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, 
and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Colnay and see from there, go to Hamath the Great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. The prophet says, Woe to those at ease, to those who dwell in false security. You know, in chapter 6, you see a really rare moment out of the prophet Amos because here he addresses two mountains. He addresses both the mountain of Zion and the mountain of Samaria and in doing so he addresses both the northern king of kingdom of Israel whose height is Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah whose height and the basis of their power is Zion. He spends almost all of his time speaking exclusively to Israel but here we see a little bit of both and We see a little bit of both because they will both ultimately succumb to the same hubris. He begins to speak about the character of those who are at ease and the character of those who feel secure. And before we dig into the exegesis here in Amos chapter 6 verse 1 through 3 today, I want to stress to you that what we see here is not an encouragement to fleshly anxiety. What we see here is not an encouragement to fleshly anxiety. Just because it was bad and that there was much woe and much lamenting for those who were at ease and those who feel secure, that does not mean that the people of God should not be secure. This is not an excuse to kind of wallow in the ever-present anxiety of our age. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, the reality is, is that Scripture teaches us that God does have ease for His people in His way and in His time. It's spoken of in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 12, like this. And this is is the exact same word employed that we see for ease in Amos chapter 6, verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 33, verse 12, Your eyes will behold the King in His beauty. And they will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on terror. You want to know how at peace the people of God are in the providence of God is that when they see the king in all of his beauty, even the terrors that have surrounded them, they will muse upon because of the glory and the might of the Lord. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more insolent people. The people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of your appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem and untroubled, 
That is an at-ease habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. God has a very real ease. He has a very real security. He has a very real, real peace for his people. And that peace is in him. What Amos is saying here when he says, Woe to you who are at ease and woe to you who feel secure is not an indictment against feeling ease and security in the faithfulness of the promises of our God. He's not encouraging you to go out and be anxious about the things of the world. Instead, what he speaks woe to here is a false ease. Notice what it says in verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who, I love this, you talk about speaking to where we're at today, those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Notice he doesn't say woe to those who are secure. On the mountain of Samaria. If you were secure, there would be no need for woe. These people feel a way, and because they feel this way, they have assumed that that is reality when the reality is that they are not secure, and therefore they should not be at ease. The false easiness of secure feeling. When in truth, they are the furthest thing from secure. Now, they think much of the way they feel, though. Have you ever met anybody that thinks much of the way they feel? We all have done it at some point. We will probably all do it again. Have you ever been speaking with with people, and, and since the topic here is about the Lord himself and the way they feel secure and whether or not that is accurate, have you ever been speaking with someone about the things of the Lord and the truth of Scripture and, and going through the Word and showing them things in the Word and they disagree with what, not you necessarily, but actually what the Word says, and you point it out and you go, there it is, and they go, well, I feel or I believe so-and-so, and the so-and-so is always different from what that particular Scripture would say. That is the concept that is being highlighted here. Well, I know it says that, but I feel or I believe it's like this. Well, isn't that precious? Woe to those at ease in the feeling of their security when there is no security. But they will always think much of the way they feel. And, and that, that statement's always supposed to end the argument, right? Like, well, if I feel that way and I believe that way, then somehow that validates that stance, and you have to just kind of leave me be in it. Friends, he won't leave them be in it. Now, they think very highly of their own feelings. They think very highly of their own opinion. As a matter of fact, they are said to be notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. They think much of themselves. They're men of note and not just men of any note. They are men of note within the nation that is the first of the nations. One of the most dangerous things they believe about this particular lie is that it is based on a mountain of truth. They remember what God said in Exodus chapter 19. When he said, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, this crowd. Thus you shall say to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my 
treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So here you got a group of people, and they're standing there on Zion, and more particularly, they're standing there in Samaria, upon the Mount of Samaria, and they look at themselves and they go, Well, we got a pretty good deal going. We got a pretty good deal going because, first of all, we're kind of notable men. I mean, all of the house of Israel is coming to us. We are the leaders. We're, we're religious leaders, we're political leaders, we're, we're economic leaders. All of the house of Israel is coming to us. And man, this isn't just any old country. This is the house of Israel, the one that before God, amongst all the nations of the world, is his treasured possession. This mindset is how they get where they are and will end up where they end up. Man, we're something. We know the stuff. We're the people. We're the people of the people. The notable men amongst the first of all the nations. We're not just any leaders. We're Israel's leaders. They remembered what the Lord said in Exodus chapter 19. They forgot what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Yeah, that's us. Out of all of the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, if you only have Exodus chapter 19 and you look at the things that the Lord did in destroying a nation, and not just any nation, the world's sole superpower at the time, in bringing them to their knees, the death of millions. You look at that and you go, man, he did that because I'm his treasured possession, and that's all you know? Then, man, you do think you're precious, and you do think you're special, and you think you're special because inherently you're actually special. Walk around. Got your little Israel pin on. Huh? First of the nations, top of the heap, nothing but the best. But if you know Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 7, Then what you do is you walk around and you go, my God is special. Because I was nothing. I was a dog to the Egyptians. They twisted in their language the crossed over ones into the dusty ones. Slave making bricks without straw. You're humble in the position that the Lord has given you. Faith and the ability of men to do what is required by God of their own accord brings nothing but hubris and pride. Faith in the faithfulness of a God who ordains brings humility and gratefulness for taking the slave 
and making him a treasured possession. These people got Exodus 19. They forgot Deuteronomy chapter 7. And because of this, because they are noble men of the first of the nations who have a very high opinion, and their opinion is ease and security. And if you don't believe it, ask me. We'll tell you that's the way we feel, and that ought to put an end to the argument. Because of that stance, the Lord will weigh them in the scales. And he will weigh them. The way God judges men when the judgment is going to be damnation. He will weigh them not according to his own grace, but he will weigh them according to their own deeds. He will put them on the scales compared to every other man around them. God compares their inherent value in verse 2. Pass over to Colnay and see. And from there, go to Hamath the Great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than any of these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? The breakdown we'll make quickly. Kalnei and Hamath are both Syrian city-states. Gath is a Philistine city-state. And when a very partial God judges impartially and justice rolls down like waters, it will roll over all of them. Assyria's eye is not simply for the mountain of Samaria and of Zion. Do you remember when we read at the very beginning of our study in Amos, we learned the fate of what the Syrian city-states would be in Amos chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avin and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. The fate of the Philistine cities is not any better. He continues in verse 6 and says, For thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people and delivered them up to Edom. And so I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds, and I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. And so here you have the Lord speaking through the prophet, and he says to you men who are so at ease, to you who feel secure in Zion and in Samaria, you notable men, the the, the, the lead men of the first of the nations. Take a look around you. Look what the Assyrians are doing to these people. Look what they're doing in Calneh. Look what they're doing in Hamath. Look what they're doing in Gath. Do you think you're going to be any different? They're like a human meat grinder. One of the things that made the Syrian army, the Assyrian army, so powerful was 
that they had a 100% military service rate for every single male in the nation. No exceptions from the poorest slave to the richest nobleman. Everybody worked on a three-year rotation. They spent one year building roads and bridges and canals and aqueducts and things of the sort to strengthen the kingdom and to build up their physical strength. Then they spent a year as soldiers in battle and then they spent a year home with their wives and their families and then the cycle started all over again until you got too old to fight or more than likely got dead. They were hardened warriors. When they came to these cities with conscript soldiers, they ran them like sausage through a grinder. He says, look around at what's happening around you. Do you think you're better than these people? Do you think you're going to be able to stand against this horde? Is there a difference between you and them? Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is your territory, is their territory greater than your territory? The Lord says, is there a difference between you and them? Not when justice rolls like water. As a matter of fact, at the gates of Jerusalem, after all that Amos is warning them to be woeful about has already been fulfilled in Samaria. After there's no one, after the original audience no longer exists to read this book, because they're nine out of ten are dead, and the ones that aren't have been carried off to the furthest of lands. After this has already happened, after Sennacherib has already come down, Sennacherib himself, or his mouthpieces, will actually reference back to Hamath and to the mountain of Samaria as he speaks to the kingdom of Israel at the walls of Jerusalem for why they should not trust their Lord, why they should not trust their king. They should open the gates and lay down their spears and make it easy. In 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 26. Now, this is a huge narrative, and we're going to have to kind of jump in right in the middle, so let me bring you up to speed a little bit. Hezekiah is king in Jerusalem. He's the last good king that Judah will have. And the Lord has saw fit to one last time spare the southern kingdom, or at least the city of Jerusalem itself. Most all of their cities other than Jerusalem and then the northern half of the kingdom fell. But he's going to spare Jerusalem itself. He's going to give them one more chance. He's going to show them his grace, his glory one more time, his goodness to forgive in spite of their sin. He's going to show them all of this one more time in hopes that they would perhaps see the error of their ways, but the Lord says that they won't. But he's going to do it for his glory, and he's going to do it his way. And so here the people of Jerusalem are, and Samaria has fallen, and Colnell has fallen, and Hamath has fallen, and they're just falling like dominoes, man. It's just a black wave. And here is the horde, 180,000 strong, Scripture says, standing outside the gates of Jerusalem, and Sennacherib doesn't go himself. He's... They may think they're the noble and renowned men of the first of the nations, but Sennacherib's pretty sure he is. He doesn't come and give speeches. 
he sends the hands of the king. Likewise does Hezekiah. And right outside the wall in front of Jerusalem, in verse 26, it says that Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, said to the Rabshakeh, these are the men that come as the hand of the king. They've been talking about what's going to happen if these people don't surrender. And they've been speaking to him in Hebrew. This is a political liability because everyone surrounding the top of the wall can hear what's being said. And they said, please speak to your servants in Aramaic for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? That is a very sterilized translation. The King James actually does a lot better. Check it out on your own sometime. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. And do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me. And come out to me. And then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and wine, and a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nation ever delivered his his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharvim, Hena, and Avah? They have delivered, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Whom among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? I mean, here you've got the Lord saying to Amos, look, judgment is going to roll down like water. You men are at ease. Woe to you who are at ease. You feel secure. Woe to you who feel secure. Your ease and your security is false. Look around you. Look at the nations around you. Let them be an example. Hamath has already fallen. One of these days, this same barbarian king is going to stand outside the gates of Jerusalem and use you as a reference for how none can deliver out of his hand. Now you would think that that would make you quake in your boots. But the reality is, is these people, these men are men of self-contradiction. Look what he says to him in verse 3. O you who put far away the day of disaster 
and bring near the seat of violence. In the final analysis, these men are men of self-contradiction. They are those who would simultaneously put disaster far away. It literally means to, to cast out or to exclude or cast off. So if you brought up this subject of judgment to them as the Lord is doing through the prophet Amos, they're going to reject that. That's not true. We're not about to be the object of judgment. We're not about to be the object of ridicule or of scorn. Don't you know that we're the first of all the nations? And you're speaking to the most notable men of the first of all the nations. Look, we feel secure and that should be enough for you. Those who would reject that disaster is at hand are actually the very people who are bringing near the seat of violence. Those that who would feel secure are actually the ones that are ensuring that they're not and refuse to see the truth when it is put directly in front of their face. So we have to ask ourselves, I think, this morning, why do men hide their faces from the truth of judgment? Why? Because, friends, there's nothing new under the heavens. If they were doing it, they weren't the first to do it. And they most certainly wouldn't be the last. And so why is it when judgment is at hand, we will accept the way we feel about our security and our ease instead of what is proclaimed by God himself? Why do men hide their faces from the truth? Why does it happen, as the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 8, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? They have healed the womb of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. How do you get to peace, peace when there is... I mean, you reverse engineer this deal. How do you get to peace, peace when there is no peace? Well, because they healed the womb of my people lightly. Man, you want to you hear a gross story? Because this, this is gross story stuff. It's going to get better. Right? Man, well, I broke my ankle real bad. Some of you remember I had to preach on a stool forever. It was not natural for me at all. It was very uncomfortable, right? Sit on a stool, almost got some chai tea to drink while I did. It was awesome. Switched to loafers. It's great. Get a haircut the whole bit. The, so I, I had this surgery, and they sliced and diced my ankle pretty good, and they went to take the stitches out of it, and when they went to take the stitches out, the, the wound popped open. And the guy was like, ooh. That's not good. It's right down on the ball of my ankle. You know, there's not a lot of meat there or anything. Pretty, pretty tight to the bone. So, buddy, they butterfly that thing up, covered it back up, and said, come back in a week. Man, by that night, it's burning. By the next day, it feels like somebody's putting a cigarette out in it, and I know something's wrong. So we go back to the doctor. He unwraps it. Stinks. It's green. Got staph in it. And he's like, look, we got to be real careful because there, there's not a lot of blood flow here. It's right against the bone. He said, if we can't get this deal woed up, man, skin graft time. Like, not good. And I'm like, all right, man, we'll dig that stuff out of there and pinch that thing back together and sew it back up. 
And he's like, no, we can't do that. It's already in there. You can't just scoop it out and pinch it together and sew it back up. He said, we'll end up cutting your leg off if we do that. He said, what we got to do is get it out from the, the bottom of the pit all the way to the top. And so we're going to have you just wet, dry bandage it. I said, I don't sound so bad. Yeah, the first time anyone heard root canal, it didn't sound too bad either. This is like fun with home dentistry. You put this, this chlorine solution on a bandage, you stick it on there, and it draws everything up out of that wound, and then it like turns to stone, and then 12 hours later, you pull that bad boy off. They call it debreeding. I call it ripping and tearing. I would sit there on the couch and just, you know, just little bits at a time, Papa would come by and go, you want me to just yank it off for you? Get away from me, old man. <clears throat> you do that twice a day, every day. Was not a light way to heal a wound. Man, it would been so much better if they could have just pinched it up and sewed it up and called it a day. But man, if they had done that, they would have tried to heal the wound lightly and what you would have got is peace, peace when there is no peace. It seemed okay for a moment. It would have ended in disaster. How do you get to peace, peace when there is no peace? They healed the wound lightly. How'd they heal the wound lightly? Anybody can open up. Why would they do that? You can open up a textbook and go, staff, do not close it up. How, how could you get to the point where someone would do that? You change the textbook. which is exactly what they did. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Instead of going, well, hey, listen, you know, it says if you close this wound up, buddy, it's going to rot your foot off, but let's just see if we can get away with it anyway. No, everybody knows you. you know, people go, no, stop, whoa. <laughs> well, if that's what you want to do, how do you get, get around to doing it? You go change the textbook. So the medical textbook says, hey, when you get staff, this is how you deal with it. Scrub it out, pinch it together, and sew it back shut. And everybody will sit around and go, uh-huh. Have you noticed how the definition of concepts in our culture is changing at a rapid pace? This is what they did. Puts them in denial. They can say, peace, peace. They can feel secure. They can be at ease when in actually there is no peace. And, you know, from a kind of a cold logical perspective, looking at this, you know, now thousands of years from the events that occurred, we look at that and go, man, why would you deny the eventuality? I mean, if you have the word of the Lord and he says, because you're doing this, I'm going to bring disaster, why would you not only keep doing it, but then kind of rework the thing in such a way where you felt pretty confident and secure in what you were doing? Why deny the eventuality? Denial won't stop it from coming. That's why they call it an eventuality. It's common. So why deny it? And the answer is, is because we're thinking about, as detached as we are from the situation, we think about that from a very logical manner, but this is not a matter of logic for these people. This is a matter of the heart. And having an inflated view of their own self-importance and then the confidence that comes along with that. Hey Amen. We're the notable men of the first of the nations. Haven't forgotten that key component that the only thing that makes you special is God and not you. 
having an inflated view of self-importance and the confidence that comes along with it, they hold judgment in contempt because they believe they're above it. Why should they believe judgment's coming? They think they are nigh on God's gift to planet Earth. This is exactly what Job says about these kind of men. I want you to turn over the book of Job with me real quick. Chapter 12. Because of the hubris of their position, the very concept that judgment could possibly come upon them is a contemptible thing to them. Job chapter 12, verse 5. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. Misfortune? That, that's for those people that don't have their stuff together, man. That's for those people that have slippery shoes. We got the best shoes that uh, we got the best shoes a shekel can buy. You know? Bought it with temple tax. Best shoes a shackle can buy. This is for people that aren't smart enough not to walk in slick spaces. We're smart enough not to walk in slick spaces. As a matter of fact, don't you know this is a nation of laws? I mean, they're as legalistic as they get. We got handrails. We put a little grit in the epoxy. Huh? We've got it all figured out. Why would you think we would? Misfortune? That's for those people that don't take care of their business. We take care of our business. Who do you think you are suggesting that mishap and judgment would come upon us? Those who are at ease hold misfortune in contempt, he says. And they do so in one of two ways. Either by outright denial or by claiming any misfortune or judgment that might come is so far away as to be inconsequential. Now, I know this gets a little ticky-tacky here, but you got to pay attention because this is going to be real important later. These people that would hold misfortune and contempt because of an overinflated view of their own condition, judgment's not coming on us. Because of that, they are able to remain in this kind of denial from the heart by doing so in either outright denial or by saying it's so far away it will never come. Outright denial. Amos chapter 9, verse 9 through 10. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but not a pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. There's the first way, straight up denial. The Lord says it's coming, we say it's not. He says yes, we say no. Or... Perhaps a more, you know, intellectual, judicious view. This is kind of, you know, the difference between the angry atheist and the thinks he's intelligent agnostic. Right? The more judicious view is that, well, if it does come, it's just so far away that it really doesn't matter. We see that in places like Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 26. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, 
and he prophesies of times far off. So take your pick. You've got those who are kind of angry in flat-out denial, or you've got those that are a little bit more judicious in their thought and says, yes, well, what you say, prophet may be true, and we don't want to deny the word of the Lord, but we know that if this comes, it is for a time way far off that really has no meaning for us today and they have to do these two things they have to take one of these two courses because to do otherwise would expose their own sin it would it would show their actual condition all of the the fineries and high thoughts they have about themselves of being the first of the peoples and the notable among them and all of the things that they think about their own position and righteousness is going to be shown to be a fraud and it's going to be shown, I would tell you, to be a fraud, not just to the people around them, but for themselves. More importantly, they would have to face it themselves. They would have to look in the mirror and say, I am not this righteous, awesome object of God's gift to mankind. What I am is an object of judgment. To do otherwise would expose both their sin, their actual condition, and the severity thereof. Something they certainly don't want the people to see and something they're not willing to see for themselves. How does one remain in such a continuous and profound denial? As we've already touched on out of Jeremiah, the trick to pulling this off. And there is a very particular formula for making it happen. I, I really think that a lot of the things that we see, you know, anxiety seems to be so rampant today. Everybody's anxious, you know, everybody's got a condition. Write your prescription for it or go to counseling or take a class or whatever. Everybody's anxious. And, and it's funny to me that, that so often the, 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 um, that the advice of the people of God for anxiety is, is is not turn to the Lord. Turn to Him. And I think the reason that that's not the advice is because for a lot of folks, that's the thing that's causing the anxiety. I think we mistake anxiety in our world today a lot of times just for good old-fashioned conviction. Um, but there is a formula here for what you can do in order to maintain this kind of continuous and profound denial in such a way, and, and it had to have happened because it ends with God balancing the scales of justice and there is a destruction that's coming that is befitting all of the stuff they're doing. How did they get there? The answer lies not in convincing yourself you're not falling short of God's righteousness. In other words, the answer to being able to do what they're doing is not simply to just go out and, 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 and live, do, believe, and worship as you please, and then go, no, I just think it's okay. That doesn't work because the testimony of God's word and a lot of his testimony in natural law will always speak against that. And so there is constantly the indictment that is coming forth from the Word of God, that is coming forth from the glory of God displayed in the natural creation around us. There is always this indictment that is coming out of that. And you can tell yourself all day long, 
No, this over here, what I'm doing with my family is okay. What I'm doing with my money is okay. What I'm doing with my worship is okay. What I'm, what I'm doing, all this is okay. But there, there's a million things you're doing, and every single one of them that's out of line, man, the Word of God is convicting. It is making an indictment against, and indictments bring conviction, and that, will, that subterfuge, that illusion will never last. Instead of trying to convince yourself of a million lies, all you have to do is convince yourself of one lie. And if you can get it to be accepted in your heart and in your mind and in the heart and minds of people around you so that it becomes the standard in your society, the answer lies not in convincing yourself that you're not falling short. Instead, the answer lies in inventing a new standard, inventing a new God, and inventing a new word that comes from Him, and particularly making sure that you invent it in such a way that it is created based off of your image so that it always wants to line up in agreement with you. This is not my opinion. Back in Job chapter 12, this is the way Job says it works for those who are at ease, who have contempt for misfortune. Chapter 12, verse 5. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace. How could they be at peace, man? The Ten Commandments says... Stealing's wrong. The tents of robbers are at peace. And those who provoke God are secure. Who bring their God in their hand. Man, if you know the word of the Lord, how is it that you, you, you can be a thief and you can be at peace and you can provoke God in any manner you want and still be secure? So that you are so confident in your own position and so at ease where you're at that if anyone speaks about misfortune or judgment, you will hold them in contempt. How can you do that when all of this is right here? You don't make that your God. You bring your God in the palm of your own hand. They hold their God in their hands. One that they create after their image and their likeness. Not the other way around. Isaiah and Ezekiel, by the way, both do beautiful monologues on this subject. They're just really long. <laughs> it probably ought to be used for an entire sermon series, not for reference. How can the robbers be at peace, man? How can you be secure when you're provoking God at every turn? You just rewrite who God is. Bring him with you right in your hand. When your God looks an awful lot like you, you end up looking awfully righteous by his standards. It makes people feel secure when they're not. It makes them be at ease when they shouldn't be. Therefore, therefore, such ease allows sin to continue unchecked by conviction you're not convicted, man. The standard says you're fine. You're doing great, man. Well-saved man. Just keep her on up, buddy. Keep doing what you're doing. Such ease allows sin to continue unchecked by conviction and therefore furthers judgment. 
It makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. That's why he says of these men in chapter 3, or chapter 6, verse 3, you who put far away the day of disaster, those who have contempt for misfortune, you bring near the seat of violence. Because by bringing your God in your hand, or stacking up at Dan at Bethel and saying, this, O Israel, is that God that led you out of Egypt, and rewriting His Word, making Him in your own image in the way that you want Him to be, if you can just get Him to swallow that lie... It looks so much like who they already are. They love that lie. Every time you look at the word, man, I'm doing great. I'm doing awesome. Hey, Scripture says test yourself. Let's go test. Let's see what it says. Yep, hey man, I passed the test. Scribes have made the word of God a lie. They're not passing the test. They're failing the test. They're failing it so hard they don't even know it. Such ease allows sin to continue unchecked by conviction so that it furthers judgment, which is why God says to Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 15, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Man, you, you who say... You put fear far away. You bring near the seat of violence. The Lord said, man, I was angry. I, I am furious at those who are at ease. Why? Because I was angry a little. And all they've done is just provoke and provoke and provoke, deny, 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 and make it worse and worse and worse so that they have furthered the disaster. He says, I was angry a little, and because of them and their ease in the face of my anger, I'm angry a lot. Man, one thing you knew for sure at my house when Dad got that tone in his voice that said that he was angry, it was to not act like it was no big deal. Don't do that. Dad got that tone in his voice and that look in his eye, you need to get serious. You get serious and maybe he'd just be angry a little bit. You blow him off like it was no big deal? Oh, buddy, bad scene. Here we see, boy, I was bad about doing it when I was about 15, too. It was a bad, <laughs> you know, the old saying about teenage boys, when they turn 13, you put them in a box and feed them through the hole. When they turn 15, you plug the hole. If they make it to 17, you let them back out. That was pretty much me. Hubris on parade and man, it's on parade. Amos chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now, in this list, and we could go down and exegete all of it. I'm not going to. I don't think that was the point that the Lord was trying to make through the prophet here. Nothing in this list that you see here in and of itself is sin. That is to say that, you know, having a nice bed or a nap on the couch, 
Man, I always root for a nap on the couch on Sunday afternoons. It doesn't always happen, but if you can even just get a short one, it's pretty sweet. doesn't mean that a nice bed or a nap on the couch or lamb or veal chops or songs or instruments or even, even idle songs, that word just means, I mean, it's pretty common. Like pretty much any lullaby that you hum to your kid to get them to go to sleep would, would qualify. Mama always did Amazing Grace, but I guess that's not an idle song. But you know what I mean. I mean, this is, these are the normal things of life. Not even wine and oils that are used for cosmetics and perfumes. None of this in and of itself is sin. What the focus on here is excess. And it's the way that he stacks it up on top of each other over and over and over and over. Woe to the, you who lie on beds of ivory and stretch yourselves out on couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall and who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent instruments for themselves and drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils. What you see here is self-exalting excess at the expense of both God and their fellow men. Because the way they got to this place was by rewriting the word of God, rewriting who God was, bringing God with them in their hand, putting him on a pedestal in Dan, putting him on a pedestal in Bethel, and saying, this is God, not this God, but this is God who led you out of Egypt. They have done it at his expense, When you read the minor prophets at large, you will find they have done it at the expense of so many of their fellow Israelites around them. They're eating veal and lamb chops and laying on an ivory bed every day at the expense of everyone else. It's most clearly seen. We could could look through any of it and pick it out, but it's most clearly seen this self-exalting excess at the expense of God, at the expense of men, is most clearly seen in the statement about drinking wine in bowls. Now, contrary to what my mama would have told you, what's being brought to the attention of the reader here is not the size of the bowl that's necessarily the problem. Like, that's what we kind of think. First thing pops in your head, wine goes in a glass, and here you see him, you know, drinking it out of the punch bowl. Well, the problem with that is, is in this part of the world, people drink wine out of bowls all the time. As a matter of fact, it's out of a bowl that we see Christ on the night of the Last Supper with his apostles observing the Passover. That's not the point here. And though I'm sure that they were guzzling it by the punch bowl full, based off everything else that's said about it. The word is Mizrak. Most of the time that the word Mizrak is used in the Hebrew, it actually means a pretty small little container. It's not its size that's in view here, it's what it's used for. With the exception of Amos chapter 6, verse 6, every single other instance of its use in Scripture references very particular ceremonial bowls and basins that are used in the temple worship of God. These people's problem is not that their standard of living is too high. These people's problem is that their view of themselves is too high. This is not simply material excess. Material excess is where you end up. 
But this often gets preached as, as a sermon against material excess. And so what you ought to do is, you know, go home and, and go get your, you know, your iPhone, go get your old iPhone 5 out of the drawer, take your iPhone 11 out in the yard and burn it because you've got more than you need. You know, go back to buying just, you know, the block cheddar cheese. Don't buy the really good stuff. Don't, don't, don't be excessive. This gets preached as, as, as against material excess, but material excess here is just the symptom. It's not the disease. The disease is the excessive value of human pride that would raise itself up into a place where it has no standing. And because it's raised it up to that place, believes that it has a right to all of this. This is not material excess in simplicity. Instead, it is excess of position, excess of self-exaltation that yields viewing material excess as their right and their portion. They were supposing upon the righteousness of God as though they were entitled to it all, even to drink their wine out of the same bowls that his wine comes in. Notable men of the first of the nations. And they did this all, as Job said, provoking the Lord. They did all of this, injuring the heart of the one true God while constantly denying him, hurting the heart of the Lord, not the one that they hold in their hand, instead the one who loved them so much that his heart grieved unlike theirs over the ruin of Joseph, injuring the heart of the one who roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem so that the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. And therefore, or as we saw a couple of weeks ago, rightly well. Not just therefore as the extension of because this, then this, but because of this, rightly so, it should be this way. Chapter 6, verse 7, Therefore, rightly well, they, those who think that they're the notable men of the first of the nations, those who deny judgment while bringing the seed of violence near, Therefore, rightly well, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. They'll be the first. That word there in the Hebrew does not necessarily, even though it would probably indicate this, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be the first in number. That was certainly the case with the Babylonians and most likely the case with the Assyrians. But that doesn't mean they'll be the first ones. When it's time to go to exile, they load up on the first bus. The word means chief or capital. It's used of capital cities. It's used of the capitals on top of columns. They will be the chief amongst the exiles. When the Assyrians come, and they're coming, with all of their horrors, and they are horrible. They're going to be right at the top of the list. 
what Sennacherib would do to the chief among his exiles is horrific. One of the things about the Assyrians is they were pretty prolific writers and they liked to write about their conquests. Some of the things that they wrote were so vulgar that they would not be appropriate to share in a church setting. But here's just a smattering of, to give you some idea of what it meant when you're going to be the chief amongst the exiles. Here's what's coming for you. These are the words of the Assyrian king speaking of their conquest. I hung the heads of the kings upon the shoulders of their nobles and with singing and music paraded them through the streets. I flayed. I flayed many. You know what that means? Skint. Like a deer. I flayed many right through the land and draped their skins over the walls. I burned their adolescents, boys and girls. I erected a pillar of heads to my deity in front of their city. That's the mild stuff. He says, because you've done this, when this horde comes... You will be chief amongst their captives. And indeed it came. It's recorded in 2 Kings. Second Kings chapter 17. Verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Halah, and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel that they had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and a shirim on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. They did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. And yet... The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all of the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent you to be my servant, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. They would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them and they went after false idols and became false 
And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings. They used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Yeah, he was angry, all right. He was so angry, he sent a kingdom of demonic men that would do things like erect pillars of heads to their deity from your slain in front of your city gates. And you look at that stuff and you go, golly, man. Like, that is rough. That's rough. And when you kill 90%, that makes a pretty big pillar, I would assume. That's rough. And you would think to yourself, you would think to yourself that surely this will only happen once, right? I mean, just once. Like, it, you know, that's the kind of thing that people make the statement, scarred for life. If I see that, just see it. Scarred for life, man. Surely this can only happen once. If this kind of horror comes, if this kind of destruction comes, and it comes because of disobedience, then surely when that thing is done rolling through, when the Lord finally turns that tide back, when He finally says, this far your proud waves come and no farther, which coincidentally with Sennacherib, He's about to do at Jerusalem. But that wave's going to break like waves on a rock. But when He says, this far and no farther, when destruction halts at the threshing floor. Then man, when that deal's finally over, you would think that the survivors and their posterity that came after them would be like, never again. Never again will we do this. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to justify yourself. It's not worth it to sleep on a bed of ivory. It's not worth it to drink your wine out of the bowls from the temple. It's not worth it to get to eat the veal chops and the lamb chops every day. It's not worth it, dude. Don't do it. Eat it every day. Confess your sin, man. Look at the Word of God. See what it says. Repent. Humble yourself. It's not worth it. You'd think that's what they would say. Sennacherib rolled through in 722 B.C. And you would have thought that would have been enough to fix the problem. And yet, roughly 750 years later, the Gospel of John records this event in John chapter 4. Verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. I love that statement. He had to pass through Samaria. It's an imperative in the Greek. 
It is absolutely an imperative for Christ to pass through Samaria. It is not a geographic imperative. As a matter of fact, geographically, Christ has to go way out of his way. If you're going from Jerusalem or Judea to Galilee, Samaria is up here. you got to go all the way around. There's some pretty nasty hilly country, by the way, that you could have avoided otherwise, to get to Samaria only to come back to Galilee. But he had to go, not because it was along the way. He had to go. Because there was one of the descendants of those people, one of the 10% that made it, who was still following after the same failed ways of her forefathers, and yet, yet she was ordained to be an object of the grace of God. And so he had to go. He had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sinchar and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I have given him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. So Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now look, here's the point. When those who are at ease start smelling judgment. And as she smells it, her contempt for it is going to rise. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. What do you do with prophets of the true God if you've got the God you made in the palm of your own hand? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. 750 years later, after all they went through, and the second verse is same as the first, still doing the same old thing, saying that judgment is far off while making certain that they are drawing the seat of violence near. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am. Now I know your Bible says, I who speak to you am he. It says, I am. He go, he may. I'm it. You would think that with all the atrocities of the Assyrian Empire and all that the prophets the Lord sent to them to say, if you keep doing this, it will be your end. And all it did was make them worse. You would think when that judgment come, it would have fixed them. It would set them straight. Friends, the reality is this. There is no judgment in this world that is sufficient to turn the heart of a sinner from his evil ways. The only thing that is sufficient to make him quit arguing about the mountain of Samaria is Jesus Christ himself. That's it. Without him, they'll never get it. They'll never figure it out. They'll never set it down. They'll never keep believing their own lies. They will never quit feeling at ease. They will never quit feeling it secure until the day when disaster proves they're not. But with Christ, there's something different. With Christ, there's something different. Disaster wasn't enough. Oh, it was justice. It was good. They got what they deserved, man. Justice rolled down. But justice alone is not enough to save a sinner. It's not enough. It takes the effectual grace of Jesus Christ. It takes Jesus sitting down at a well, the eternal son of the living God, and letting this Samaritan woman run her mouth at him. And yet in grace draws her to himself. Judgment will never be enough. Effectual grace in Jesus Christ is the only thing that will suffice. It is the only answer for Samaria. It is the only answer for the United States. And it is the only answer for you and for me. Man, don't come to Christ because you're simply because you're scared of judgment. I understand that's often the thing that gets you motivated. That's good. Scripture says it will. That's good. But brother, if it ends there, won't be enough. Won't be enough. At some point, you got to look at him, and he's going to say, "I am." And at that point in time, you'll either worship or you'll contend. I pray that you come in faith, repentance, and worship. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, your word is incredible. It is thick it is deep it is big it's big or there is much redemptive history here i pray that we cover it well and we do it justice or we thank you for it or we thank you for your word we thank you for the fact that you save samaritans that you save gentiles and you save jews we ask it all in jesus name amen